As Emily has said, my name is Ed Taminga. I'm a retired pastor um, after having retired a couple of times already. And um, I'm presently at Fairway Christian Reformed Church where we've come to know Pastor Steve and Emily and their family and um, have many fond and wonderful memories together. And so it's my privilege to uh, be with you here this morning, those of you who are in the sanctuary as well as those who are joining us and worshiping with us online during this uh, pandemic time. We continue that um, series um, uh, decided upon by your pastoral um, committee uh, and Pastor Steve, uh, following the uh, stories in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And um, this morning we are at the point of looking at the story called the Tower of Babel. And the story, of course, comes from the book of Genesis and the 11th chapter. Now, the book of Genesis can be easily divided into two parts or two sections. The chapters, the early chapters from chapter 1 through chapter 11, and then chapters 12 to the end, chapter 50. And the two sections can be divided not only in terms of the chapters, but in terms of their themes. The theme of those first 11 chapters might be called the primeval history of the human race. That is the beginning, the, 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 the first age of humanity. The primal history of the human race. Then with chapters 12 through 50, we have the patriarchal history uh, of the Hebrew race. And there are four events in that first section, and there are four patriots uh, uh, in, in that last section or that second section. Uh, there's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the unraveling of their stories in those chapters. In those first 11 chapters, we have four events. Uh, creation, of course, and then the fall into sin through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Uh, God's judgment on the world in the flood. Uh, and you were led in that uh, event last week by Pastor Steve. And this morning, the fourth event, the building of the Tower of Babel. And so let me read those verses from Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. And they settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks. Let's bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortal. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, 
then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now this morning we want to um, sort of look at three things. First, of course, we want to sort of review and look at the story itself. But more important than that is what's it all about? What's the meaning of that story? And then I want to conclude by looking at a counterpoint or a counterpart to this story. So let's take a look at the story itself. It's really very simple. It's quite brief. It's estimated that this particular event took place about, well, a hundred or so years after the flood, that the population on the face of the earth at that time was nearing, uh, say, 30,000, but both of those facts are completely uncertain. Now, this group of people, however many there were, uh, migrated from the area surrounding Mount Ararat, uh, where the Ark of Noah had landed, and uh, where they began their civilization. They migrated to the east until they came to a very fertile plain, the plain called Shinar, which is really located between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Today, the uh, country, uh, the nation of Iraq, is located there. And here there were natural resources for, for making brick. And so they decided to settle down and build for themselves a town and, and a tower. A tower which, in their extravagant enthusiasm, they said would literally reach the heavens. Now, this tower was, in all probability, what we know as a ziggurat, or the prototype to a ziggurat. And from archaeology, we know pretty well what a ziggurat was like. It was a huge, it was a, a massive structure, usually square, uh, consisting of several stories or several levels. Usually, again, seven of them. And each level, of course, would, would be narrower than the one underneath it. And it would go up then pyramid style uh, to the top story or to the top level. And there, on that top level, there was usually a sacred shrine that was dedicated to the heavens, that is, to the stars and, and, and to the planets above. Uh, and they would there worship. There are some interpreters who take this reference, or the reference in this passage, uh, to a tower, quote, that reaches to the heavens as meaning that they had a representation, or, or if you will, a drawing of, of the heavenly skies on that top, that seventh level, uh, 
And, and it was the beginning then of the idolatry of astrology and of the zodiac. And that, of course, could very well be. We know that astrology and the worship of the stars had its origin in ancient Babylon, or Babel, as it's called here. Now, as they're, as they're building this, this, this gigantic, this impressive structure, we read of God's reaction. And it's here in verse 5. But the Lord came down to see that city and the tower that the people were building. Now, don't read that too fast. Catch something of the, of, of the irony or something even of the humor uh, between the lines as Moses writes about it. Here's this, this huge, this, this massive tower, this gigantic building project. I mean, who couldn't help but notice it on the plain of Shinar? But Moses says from, from God's perspective, from the real heaven. It's so terribly tiny that God can't see it without coming down and taking a real close look. I mean, they thought, they thought that they had a, a structure uh, that was so colossal that it would literally knock God's socks off. That they would even be able to break into His heaven with it. In reality, it's so microscopically small that it can't be seen with the naked eye of heaven. The Lord came down to see it, to see the city and the tower the people were building. And then with a miracle, he, he touched their tongues so that they spoke different languages and they were totally confused from and by one another. And, and, and gradually, they, they, not understanding one another, began to separate from one another to other areas. Max Licato, in his book, God Came Near, um, paints the scene from a, from a unique perspective. Listen to his. The scene, he says, is almost spooky. A tall, unfinished tower looming solitarily on a dusty plain. Its base is wide and strong, but, but it's covered with weeds. Large stones originally intended for use in the tower lie forsaken on the ground. Buckets, hammers, pulleys all lie strewn about. The silhouette cast by the structure is lean and lonely. Not so long ago, this tower was buzzing with activity. A bystander would have been impressed with the smooth running construction of the world's first skyscraper. One group of workers stirred freshly made mortar. Another team pulled bricks out of the oven. A third group carried the bricks to, to the construction site while a fourth shouldered the load up the winding path to the top of the tower where it was firmly set in place. It was a human anthill. Every worker knew his job and did it well. 
Their dream was a, was a tower, a tower that would be taller than anyone had ever dreamed, a tower that would punch through the clouds and scratch the heavens. And what was the purpose of that tower? To glorify God? No. To try to find God? No. To call people upward to God? Try again. To provide a heavenly haven of peace and prayer? Still wrong. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And and now says Lakedo, watch out. Let us make a name for ourselves. Well, that's the story. That's what happened. That's the event. That's what they did. But what does it mean? What was behind it? What was it all about? Now, to see the meaning of this story, of this event, we have to place it in its context. First of all, in the immediate context of the preceding chapter, Genesis and chapter 10. Now, if you have your Bibles there, you'll notice that Genesis 10 is one of those chapters filled with names. It's one of those chapters when reading the Bible, we usually skip it because it's just one long list of genealogies. But the interesting thing about this particular genealogy is that it's not so much a list of individuals, but of peoples of nations, and it traces the origin of those nations. It's as if we would record our history by saying something like this. The descendants of Europe, Britain and France and Spain and Belgium and the Netherlands, Britain became the father of America and of Canada. And to America was born Virginia and Georgia and Pennsylvania and Carolina. That's the way this list is put together. And to understand it, we have to pick up a verse or two from chapter 9, verses 18 and 19. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people, the nations that were scattered all over the face of the earth. And then chapter 10 goes on to tell us who some of these peoples, these nations were. Verse 2, the sons of Japheth, and then you've got a list. Verse 6, the sons of Ham, and then you've got a list. And verse 21, sons were also born to Shem, whose older brother was Japheth. Shem was the ancestor of all of the sons of Eber. But all of these peoples, all of these nations are traced back to one family, just to Noah, and of course before him to Adam. And it's as the Apostle Paul was to say in a future day in, in Athens to these philosophers on, Mount, on, on Mars Hill, from one man God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, Acts 17, verse 26. And God had a purpose for this list, Uh, several purposes, I think. Certainly for one, to show Israel 
and they were, after all, the first audience of these words, to, to show Israel something of its origin and its relationship to the peoples and to the nations surrounding them. And so Moses traces all of these nations in verses 2 to 5 back to Japheth, all of the nations in 6 to 20 back to Ham, all of the nations in 21 to 29 back to Shem, and of course in verse 1, all of them back to Noah. But notice verse 21. When he begins to list the descendants of Shem, he says, Shem was the ancestor of all the sons of Eber. Now who's Eber? I mean, why single him out? Well, he's the great-grandson of Shem. It's mentioned again a couple of verses later. But what's important about Eber is that from Eber comes the name Hebrew. And what Moses is saying to these Israelites, to the Hebrews, is this is where you come in. From the line of Shem through Eber, And later on, Abraham, and Moses traces out that lineage um, in verse uh, 10 and following of chapter 11. But the natural and, and logical question then, of course, is how did all these nations come to be? And how did they come to be divided? And how, how did they come to, 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 you know, develop their own languages and so forth? And so Moses answers that question with the story of the Tower of Babel. But there's much more to the meaning of this event. Something much deeper, something uh, much more spiritual, if you will. Because not only must we see it in its immediate context in relationship to chapter 10 and all of the lists of names and nations, but we need to see this event, this story too, uh, in, in, in its much broader setting uh, within that first section of Genesis. From chapter 1 and particularly chapter 3 through chapter 11. Because this event, this fourth event, is presented as the climax, if you will, of a whole long and dreadful chapter or sequence of sin. Which began with Adam and Eve's first disobedience in the garden. And Moses, writing God's word, traces that development, the development of sin, beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, going on to show its degenerative process in the line of, of, of Cain and then Lamech. Uh, in Seth, there was a, a, a new start, a fresh start, but the old sin and evil cropped up again, flourished even more so that God had to wash the world with a flood. And then now there's, there's another beginning, another start made through Noah, who's a man of great faith, and yet he fell. In, in, in fact, one commentator calls the incident of Noah's drunkenness and, and indecency recorded back in chapter 9 and the immorality of his son Ham and grandson Canaan. He calls it, this is the second fall. 
evil flourishes again. The description of humanity after the flood is exactly the same as that before the flood. And so it's as if in these chapters, 3 through 11 particularly, the biblical record is is walking around this great tragic fact of sin, viewing it from, from every angle, showing its persistent tenaciousness in the heart and nature of humanity. That far from being just some temporary handicap or or some inconsequential blemish, it's so deeply ingrained that nothing short of a new creation by the Creator Himself changing the innermost nature of humanity can save them. What we have here in this story of the Tower of Babel is 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 really a, a, a further description of what sin is and of what its consequences are. And the sin of Babel isn't so much isn't so much the gross corruption and immorality and violence that took place before the flood. This is this is sophisticated cultured sin. Here's humanity exercising its skill, its creativity. I mean, they're building a city. They're building a tower. And the tower was was a masterpiece of ancient architecture and technology. It was a tremendous achievement. Now, what's wrong with that? I mean, didn't God say to them... That they were to subdue the earth. They were to have dominion over it. They were to use their gifts and their abilities to develop culture. Yes. Indeed, He did. But God had something altogether different in mind. You see, what God was saying to humanity was cultivate and fashion this created world in My name. As my representative, create and build and investigate and invent and practice the arts and the sciences. And and as you do all of that in my created universe, do it in and close to me, the source of all things, including yourself. But they turned that completely around. Come, they said, let's build for ourselves a city and a tower that reaches for the heavens so that we can make a name for us, for ourselves. Man became the master. Totally obsessed with his own creative ability, his own cultural accomplishment his own technological omnipotence. I mean, if somebody went up to anybody working on that tower any time, any day, and asked, what does God have to do with this tower? Well, what place does God have in your building? The answer would have been, hey, what's God got to do with anything? We're building this to ourselves. If we were to go to the United Nations today, one of the great centers and places of political discussion and decision, and ask, what does 
what is what place does God have in the united nations of the world? What kind of an answer do you think we'd get? Or if we went to the to to the great scientific centers, to our factories of high technology, to the huge business complexes of our culture and society, and we and we said, what place does God have in all of this? What kind of an answer do you think we'd get? If we went to your place of business, to your job, to your office, to your home, and we ask, what place does God have in all of this? What kind of an answer would we give? You see, the the sophisticated sin of Babel was that it was building a civilization without God. One where man himself was the master. One in which man was making a name for himself. And God? God doesn't have anything to do with it at all. The consequences, you see, of a civilization without God is total confusion. When man, when humanity leaves God out of the center of life and everything becomes centered on on themselves, they've condemned themselves to a world of discord, a world of grief, a world in which individual opposes individual and nation opposes nation and one race opposes another race, which is exactly what's described here in this story. But it isn't just an ancient event back there. It's taking place today. All you got to do is listen to the daily news. It's happening in our culture and in our society, and in our world today. Only when people find the center of their lives in God once again will they be able to find love and unity and peace and togetherness and justice with each other. And by the way, that's what happened in the New Testament counterpoint or counterpart to this story. Do you know what it is? It's Pentecost. On that day, there were gathered in Jerusalem people from every nation and all kinds of different languages, but they all heard the story of Jesus who came from heaven to earth to redeem His community. And all barriers now of language and culture and human difference were broken down. And the Spirit of God invaded and brought them together. The church of Jesus Christ, and we're but a tiny part of that, but the church of Jesus Christ filled with with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit 
comprised of people who are united in Jesus Christ, who live and who work for the glory of God, continue to be that picture of Pentecost. Oh, it's not perfect, sadly. But even Pentecost was only a partial fulfillment. The final fulfillment will be heaven itself when John tells us in his revelation vision that people from every nation, every language, every culture dwell together in the eternal city of God, glorifying Him and in unity together. Sort of begs the question, doesn't it? What's my life? What's your life like? Where's its focus? Back at Babel? Or filled with Pentecost? Amen. Heavenly Father, You are the director, the ruler, the controller of history. From this event, we see that humanity centered only in itself finds confusion, pain, hurt. Thank you for Jesus for coming down from heaven Creating a people who love, who care, who build to your glory life, culture, activities. Be glorified, O God, in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.